Hello, hello. I am Karen Jean-François, and this is the Women in Data podcast, a podcast where every other week I interview some of the most inspiring women working in data. They discuss how data is used in various industries, share their knowledge and experience in the field, and equip you with tips to help you overcome challenges on your career and feel great. Let's get straight to it. I am joined today by Dr. Liz Wanless, Assistant Director of Analytics at Oyo University. Before her career in NLP and sports science, Liz competed for several years as a professional shot putter. In this episode, not only will you hear about how natural language processing supports sports science, you will also discover how Liz took some of the lessons learned as an athlete to her career in data science. These lessons support her every day in areas such as balancing different activities at once, setting up process-oriented goals, remembering the importance of rest and recovery, and much more. I honestly couldn't get enough of this conversation with Liz, and we ended up finishing a bit off topic on a reflection around the need to change the way math is taught to serve our field better. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, Liz. Welcome on the Women in Data podcast. It is a pleasure to have you with me today. And we've been planning that uh, episode and COVID got in the way, but we are here and it is happening. So thank you so much to be joining me today. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to connect with you as well as your audience. This is a great podcast that I enjoy listening to. So glad to be a part of it on the other side. Oh, exciting. And we're going to talk about so many interesting things today. So we're going to talk about text analytics. We're going to talk about all the the lessons you learned from your career as an athlete. But before we get into that, could I invite you to introduce yourself? Yes. So I, as stated, I'm Dr. Liz Wanless. I am the Assistant Director of Analytics and Assistant Professor of Sports Administration at Ohio University the number one sport business program across the globe, as a, according to the Sport Business Journal rankings. I am largely in charge of delivering sport analytics content and connecting sport analytics students with client projects, as well as researching advanced analytics application to sport business. But of course, there was a first half of my career that was spent shot putting. I am a retired professional shot putter. I qualified for the 2005 World Championship team for the U.S. and was an alternate for the Olympic team in 2008. That is very impressive. For people who are not very familiar with sports analytics, what do you mean by the content? So you said content provider. What's that? Well, it's essentially analytics application to the very specific context that is the delivery of sporting events at various levels. Many people think of sport analytics as a way to quantify athlete performance and athletic performance measures in order to assess those and get better outcomes on the field. But just as captivating is the analysis of data to advance sport business off the field, meaning Mm. the typical business functions you think of, 
recruiting and retaining customers, organizing an entire business around data-driven capabilities. All of those elements that play into business analytics really applies to sport business analytics as well. Yeah, I guess it's uh, this thing where we we only see what we see, right? So everything that relates to the sports industry businesses is going to be hidden behind the doors. Thank you so much for clarifying. How did you go from your career as an athlete to research? There's a lot of qualities and aspects of my professional shot putting career that really transfer over, which is why this discussion becomes so interesting for me to make that connection between both of those careers. But in essence, a shot put, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is one individual in a predefined circle. And you essentially have to do everything you can to throw a shot put, 8.8 pounds for women, 16 pounds for men, as far as you can. And in that delivery of the shot put to the field is so are so many qualities that are akin to data science. So making sure that you are pushing yourself while observing the fundamentals and rising to challenges, the adrenaline you feel when you get it right, when that code works and the numbers match, you know, the numbers show you what they, you think they are to show you. There are so many aspects of it, both occupations that are, that are very similar and that would appeal. But I didn't know that I wanted to get into data science until I took, I was in the first week of my first uh, specifically business analytics class. I had taken math courses all along my academic trajectory, taking them as electives. And so this is, this is the funny part of the story where it's like, if you're taking math classes as electives, perhaps that is a sign that this (laughs) is, this is something that you might like to do. Uh, But Regardless, I see so many parallels and then some transferable lessons from my athletic career and what it means to be an athlete, an an elite athlete year round to uh, data science. There are those transferables, which I believe we'll probably discuss. Yeah, and I love how you're comparing the two and you're seeing similarities and are able to actually transfer the, the skills. I feel like this is something that we should all do. So maybe listeners... Take a time, sit down, think about your passion and then how that could translate in, in your work and the things that you see in common. Because I feel like this is a good way to, to motivate yourself when you have these days where the work is not as interesting as you would like it to be. We all have these days. So being able to make the parallel with your passion could brighten your, your day sometimes. Also, <laughs> Short putting. I tried that when I was 10 or 11 because I, I did athletics as well, although I was um, hurdling. Didn't make it to the world championships though. So <laughs> I I know how hard it is and I can only admire the, the career you've built. But especially short putting, I remember trying <laughs> to throw and it was just not working for me. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> you didn't have enough time or the right coach. That's that's my that's my thinking here. Well, maybe not enough strength either. <laughs> <laughs> that's a key component. That really is. That's a key component. <laughs> I feel like I can only throw a pen right now, so I will stop at that. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> so you you went into that, and I I want to talk a bit about the the way you managed your career, and because you were also studying at the same time, I I guess in part. But when I think about that type of balance, I have had systematic processes in order to balance quite a bit at once in order to achieve the priorities that are most important to me. So there was this moment when I'm when I think about how to balance these activities. There was this moment where I had clearly taken on too much and mm-hmm. I think we can all relate to that type of experience where you you look around and you realize I have especially young in our careers, I have really taken on too much. So I was the program coordinator, an undergraduate program coordinator at Ball State University, I had two grants that had been funded. So it was running two grant funded programs, was taking doctoral classes and was maintaining an active research agenda at the same time, as well as experiential learning activities for students. So I realized at the beginning of that semester that this was going to be a tall order to accomplish everything, especially in the way that I was doing it where whatever kind of landed on my desk that day, that's what I was doing. I really didn't have a systematic approach for maintaining all of these programs over the course of the semester. So I was forced into this systematic process that I still use now. I ascribe the hours in my day according to my priorities. And this will may take some creativity on the part of the listeners to adopt a system like this. It's like, okay, what are my priorities? What are what is something that I is really important to me that I absolutely need to do? And then rank order on the way down. And the hours and time that you have are devoted to those things. So something that was a big priority at the time because I was an emerging doctoral doctoral student, you know, I was getting ready to graduate. Was the active research agenda. And even though, you know, research is like that, it's not necessarily going to land on your desk every day with a to-do that's due tomorrow. Rather, you're developing manuscripts that may be submitted in three months and then you don't hear from it until for another three months or six months, depending on where you submit. But what happened was when I prioritized that and prioritized my time toward that, it meant that every day I was spending an hour on research, 30 minutes of writing. That kept the research agenda going no matter what landed on my desk. And so allocating hours and that structure, imposing a structure on my day, really worked to keep my priorities in action, even though there were low priority items that would land on my desk with a deadline. And in that case, I could know, listen, from a week from today in an hour, there's an hour of time where I, a time block where I have to deal with this. And so I will get it to you then, you know, for a lower priority item. So I wonder how well we can, can relate to that. Certainly in academia that has supported the success that I want to have for myself because academia, you know, tends to, like I said, these things just tend to land on your desk day after day, especially when you take on too much. Now, of course, making sure I don't take on too much, that was an important lesson too. But balancing those is something that uh, became, help, really helped a proponent of the success that I wanted to have. Yeah, these these uh, items appearing magically on your desk also happened in, in business. Uh, <laughs> quite a lot, actually. So it, it's very good to see how you've been managing your days and how you've been able to prioritize things. I'm pretty sure this is going to help so many people out there. 
And in fact, what you said reminded me of a conversation I had in, so it's on, in an episode in March. So I um, can't remember the episode number exactly. Uh, maybe 54 with Robin Sutara, who is the CDO at Microsoft UK. And she's doing quite a lot as well. So she was at the time training for uh, an Iron Man, but also she manages um, all the data at Microsoft. And she's done so much in her career. She, she passed the bar in two different states and she, she's just done so much. And what she was saying was the way she managed to do that was really by shifting her priorities. So you know how we feel like, oh, there are so many great things that we want to do and we want to do them now. I know I feel like that all the time. And she was saying, okay, but so I can do this now. So focus on this. And like you said, put all your, you put all your focus on your research and writing. And then maybe in three months, I'm going to do something else, focus on something else. And then that, that's how she managed to do everything. So that's really powerful advice. Thank you. But I want to talk about port science and, and data analytics and data science. You gave us a good example of, you know, the applications and how it supports in businesses, but also what people see when they talk about sports science. But how important is data science in the sports industry right now? And what's the impact? It's a critical component. The real appeal of data science applied to sport business started on the field. When teams, and you may know the movie Moneyball, when teams began to utilize data to make decisions rather than some of the intuition and emotive emotive links from the coaches to on-field performance, data could tell a different story. And when coaches began to use some of these data-driven stories, it translated to very interesting success on the field. Well, that motivated the use of analytics off the field. Now, a lot of the history of sport business analytics revolves around structured data, numerical data to support decisions or the quantification of scenarios to support decisions. But really, and this is the research area that I'm diving into now, is unstructured data, textual data. I started a research study in the middle of the pandemic, actually. I was collecting data on the front end of the pandemic and kind of went through the pandemic happening with my participants, which is that story is equally as interesting because they work in mass event fields, So they were realizing their sports season shutting down. There were going to be layoffs. And so that was a really neat story along with the story of this research project. But in essence, I wanted to learn how these organizations were utilizing natural language processing, the capability to analyze and reproduce the human language. I wanted to understand how they were using it. And that actually led just even asking, because how do you ask that question, led to a really neat taxonomy of natural language processing use cases for the sport industry. And so this taxonomy had to be created to level set the conversation, because how do you begin to talk about natural language processing when there really isn't a complete picture of what natural language processing can do for the sport industry? And so in that taxonomy, I'll just describe it briefly, organizations could potentially use natural language processing to analyze data surrounding customer relationships, which is the first thing you think of. Yeah. Like a chatbot sentiment analysis on 
on data, text data in the public narrative, but also to evaluate their partnerships, their competitors, the sport industry as a whole, and the sport event experience, because what's happening in the sport event experience is, you know, text data is becoming available live. Customers are tweeting out live or they're asking questions of concessions live. And so this was a neat way to kind of encapsulate the conversation. And what it did was reveal to our audience all the ways that natural language processing could potentially be used. And so as participants began to answer, I realized that natural language processing is taking off to support sport business wider than I thought and faster than we thought. So I modeled the progression of natural language processing into the professional sport industry using the 91 team sample that we had, 91 of 123 at the time. Of course, it's 124 now, North American professional sport, the big four. Uh, But modeled that using a discrete version of the BAS model, which is a typical modeling strategy for the diffusion of innovations, realizing that there would be full saturation of natural language processing by 2031. And that may seem far away, but if you think about ten in 10 years' time, it being a mainstay in sport business told me this is going faster than we thought. You know, another no. metric that told me it was going faster than we thought is that 48 teams up until the time of data collection, so 48 of 91, were using natural language processing in some way, shape, or form. That's over half of the teams that are incorporating natural language processing in what they do. They revealed 334 unique use cases of how natural language processing could be used. So I think that this story that was kind of hidden is that we knew natural language processing was being used, but we didn't know how fast and how widely it was being adopted. And so I think the story now is how artificially intelligent capabilities are widespread, are becoming widespread in sport business. So that's that's one interesting result from the study. And I really like those studies where you find out is something completely alternative. I thought we'd be at the very beginning that maybe 10 teams had adopted natural language processing and that it was just beginning to take off. But reality, we're past the peak. Yeah. We're past the peak annual adoptions, if you consider it that way. So so very interesting outcomes and, a, and an interesting statement about the sport industry. Yeah, so it's funny how people are using AI and progressing really fast and we don't even realize it. Everything is happening in the background and that's actually very impressive. We we mentioned earlier that, you know, you've learned some lessons from your career as an athlete and that these are things that you apply in your day-to-day and in your career. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So these are some of the aspects that typified my athletic career that really pertain to managing what I'm doing now. So first is this this notion of clear performance indicators. In sport, you have a clear performance indicator. In business, do we always have clear performance indicators? When I had when I knew I needed to hit a certain metric to make the A standard to qualify for international competition, it was so easy to focus. You know, there wasn't any noise. It was, okay, this is what I have to do. This is what I'm going to do. And so I wonder, when I feel on my best for research projects or classes, teaching classes and sport analytics, when I feel on my best is when I have that clear performance indicator. Now, those are external goals, right? And it can't just be those. So the second one is setting process-oriented goals, setting very specific process-oriented goals. 
in shot put, what is beautiful about shot put? And I know you feel this way from your shot putting experience, but what is, (laughs) what is particularly beautiful about shot put is that if you go too fast, if you try to throw it too hard, you won't throw it as far as if you hit that right balance between the fundamentals hitting those positions and then the explosive trajectory that you ignite at the end. It has to be a balance between those things. And it really reminds me to set those process-oriented goals. You know, what positions, quote unquote, do I need to hit in order to continue to progress in my professional development? And that I will carve out time to professionally develop in the fundamentals like statistics and to reattach after having studied statistics periodically throughout, reattach myself to some of those foundational theorems and to reattach myself to some of those foundational processes as I take on, you know, more aggressive research projects. For example, topic modeling of WNBA, of the WNBA Twitter feed during the 2020 season. You know, we spent some time revisiting some underlying probability principles as topic modeling and Dirichlet allocation as a generative probabilistic model. And so revisiting Bayes' theorem and having an intuitive attachment to it is something that I've had to do and I'm still doing, you know, now. So I feel like that is a very interesting piece of it. The fundamentals and keeping your eye on the fundamentals, that really works into that story. But here's a really interesting one is the notion of rest and recovery. As an athlete year round, you have got to take rest. You have got to recover. You are almost methodical about it. After practice, you ice down. Maybe you're in an ice bath. You know, you stretch. You do all of these things that are equally as important as the practice itself. Otherwise, you cannot sustain practice for full year's time or for four years, let alone. You get injured. You take yourself out. And so how does this, this absolutely translates, I'm not as methodical about my rest and recovery as I used to be, but when I'm not, or when I neglect that aspect, I'm reminded, I'm reminded when I walk, walk into tired days or burnout days at work, I'm reminded, oh, I neglected that aspect. And so professional athletes have mastered systematic rest and recovery. Have we done that in our business lives? I feel like when you're on the track, well, I already say track because <laughs> being on the track with what we were both doing. Yes. Very often you do have someone, you know, telling you that week you're going to have, so you have your coach saying that week you're going to have a lighter week and you're going to have to make space for your rest and, and everything. While in business, we don't really have that. So the whole responsibility relies fully on us. And mm-hmm. I also do feel like it's easier to spot physical fatigue than mental fatigue. I I don't know if you have that. So moments where I've had in the past where I was putting too much on myself and I forgot to take my breaks and all these things, I realized too late that I was tired and I wasn't taking the rest I needed. Did you manage to find a way to make sure that you don't get to that point where your brain decided, that's it, I'm shutting off and then your whole body is going to go, please, you need to be on the sofa now. (laughs) As an athlete in my professional career, I have reached those states in both careers. Now, what was more systematic was the professional athlete. 
And because there were markers along the way that I knew, I was like, okay, I'm starting to feel this. But one thing that I have to do now in order to keep going, especially when I'm taking on bigger projects, new projects, and really attempting to learn is to maintain my confidence throughout. And so I will take a daily five minutes before I get started to review my CV, to remind myself of accomplishments. And this is a, this isn't uh, anything new. This is these are suggestions widespread for how to build and maintain your confidence. But I make the space for it when and I have to. And I am reminded when I don't, because then I start to lose confidence in what I'm doing. So yes, there are there are ways that I do that. I also prioritize exercise above everything else, and that is something mm. that I have to do because you know you exercise eight hours a day. You move from exercising eight hours a day to exercising one hour a day. That is a huge energy switch that I have to maintain. So I say, all right, if nothing else happens today, I am exercising. And, you know, we've had to make those statements through COVID. We've really had, we've, or some of us have had to do that, uh, especially balancing childcare. But those, those types of things are the ways that I feel I'm at my best when I am diligently upkeeping those things. And the last has to do with that is what failure is and what failure is not. So what failure is as a professional athlete, when you get knocked down, when you don't perform the way you want to, if you have a mental break and you don't do as well as you thought you should, that failure does is not that you are not a great shot putter or not a great data scientist. That failure is a signpost on the path of you achieving excellence. Those moments are just as important. We're just as important to me as a professional athlete as they are now. But I feel so many times, I and I catch myself and I catch others doing it too, that failure can take us out, that it can really destroy our self-concept as a data scientist or as a, as a professional athlete. And when it does, that is the only time when it becomes something that inhibits what you were doing. When the failure becomes something that helps as a catalyst for ex- future excellence, then it is one of the most important things to have happened along the journey. And I think athletes, especially because you're competing over the course of four years, for each Olympic Games and performances along the way, there is no perfection there. And there are sometimes very small margins for error. The mm. failure can be considered three inches in shot put. So with that then becomes how do you use it? What is failure and what isn't it? I think we can learn a lot from our professional athletes about what it can be rather than it as something that takes us out of our progression. These are things now that translate. And I kind of notice when I'm doing these well, I'm doing well. When I'm not doing these things well, I'm not doing well. Those are things that I notice. We can learn from our professional athletes. I can totally relate to that. I feel like there are these stigma around failure in our society today where failure is a bad thing. While for me, it's obviously... We all experience it in different ways. And if you fail at something, you always have this moment of doubt where you're thinking, oh, am I good enough? Or what did I do wrong? But the learnings we get from that. So how do you remind yourself that really failure is a way for you to move forward and and learn and do better next time? Right. This is 
really interesting to talk about because it was something that I had to do as an athlete. All athletes are forced to do this in some way, shape or form to keep the longevity and something that I do now. So the first thing for me is that I have to be in the right mental state to accept it. And that takes work to do that. So Coit Cooper, who was a very, a very interesting individual who did not achieve tenure at his higher education institution, had to flip the script, as he calls it, and reframe that happening to him as a way to springboard him into something else. But what I took away from that is that if you have concrete values, you know, what are you really trying to do? And one of those values for me is excellence in quantitative analysis. And so when I get myself to that point where, okay, what am I trying to do? Excellence in quantitative analysis. Then a failure, an external failure, maybe I, maybe I got a paper rejected or maybe I didn't get a job that I wanted to get. When those types of things happen, you can get yourself to stay true to that value. And then if I'm like, okay, my real intention is quantitative excellence. How do those things then contribute to quantitative excellence? And that's an on, I mean, that, that's a lifelong journey, but it has to be the right mind frame because if I'm feeling negative or if I am having a hard time with it, then I will internalize that failure that way it will feed it. It's like an inner appetite. Once you have those, that feeling, at least for me, when I have that feeling, it just wants to feed on other negativities and it wants to build up. So I really have to be in the right mind frame that though being in the right mind frame for me takes a lot of work to do Mm. that. After a disappointment, I have to really think on it. I have to journal about it. I have to remind myself of my accomplishments that I'm most proud. I have to remind myself of my progression and quantitative analysis. And that may take longer than others, depending on you know what the failure is. But then it puts it in perspective. It's like, okay, well, that happened, but now this is something that is so useful to this other thing that's really important to me. And that is something that I had to do as an athlete. I think that is where I learned, internalized that process was as an athlete, because I'd have a failure I perceived in one country, literally, you know, if I had a failure in Sao Paulo, and then I was in Japan, you know, the next weekend after that, there's very little time if you want to perform well in Japan to focus on that failure yeah. in Sao Paulo. So, and then with week after week having to do that, you get a lot of practice with it. Rarely does one failure really typify someone's ability. And it's so easy to say that to someone. You know, it's difficult to say that to yourself, but an imperative to say that to yourself. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. And just to close this episode, is there anything that you read, listen to, or watch that helps you in your personal development and career development? I have taken the approach this year to head back to the foundation. So I am working through a statistics text, and I think it's modern applications of statistical principles or something like that, but anything that you would see. And I'm working through and I'm doing various problems, constructing confidence intervals by hand. And what that does is it keeps me... (laughs) This is such a great thing to do. (laughs) Everyone has their own ideas of of fun. But what it does is it keeps me sharp working by hand, which is something that I'm not inclined to do anymore. 
but it keeps me sharp. And then I also attach to those foundational statistical elements in different ways. So the real professional development aim is geared at reminding myself of those fundamentals. Yeah, that's that's really great. And uh, as I said, very brave. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the answers are in the back of the book. The answers are in the back. Yeah, um, you, you know, I, <laughs> from time to time. So something that absolutely gives me anxiety, but when I say anxiety, really I can't sleep at night, is oh. uh, numerical reasoning tests. And when we do interviews, we have to do numerical reasoning tests. So I, I try to familiarize myself feel more confident while doing them. And I've got a master's in mathematics, so I can do them. It's just they give me anxiety for some reason. And even though the questions are at the end of the book, oh my God, as soon as I open that book, I just feel like, oh. (laughs) Well, and that is a whole other topic is the redesign of the way mathematics is taught is just there needs to be an overhaul because the quizzes, the tests, is that measuring someone's capabilities? To me, it is absolutely not especially working in the field and working as a researcher, you know, how much do I have memorized right now? Mm. You know what I'm saying? I don't. So there will be things that will naturally occur to me as a result of working in those things over time, more, more readily than others over time. But honestly, when I revisit, I still take classes uh, from time to time. I'm in an independent study right now. But when I take those classes with quizzes and tests, I still think to myself, this is not supporting the wealth of personnel that could be in this field, having these classes constructed this way. Really, it should truly be project-focused, project-based, honestly. And so I'm reminded of that because I still get anxiety when I take a quiz in a class. And I think to myself, as an instructor, I will not give a quiz. Yeah. <laughs> I will not do it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, it was great to be here and great lessons I'll remind myself uh, moving forward. Thank you very much for having me here. Thank you for listening to the Women in Data podcast. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a new guest. Until then, if you have two minutes, it would be great if you could leave us a rating or a review as it helps not only to make the podcast more visible, but also to enhance the content. If you don't want to miss the next episode, Follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We are also on LinkedIn. And if you wish to, you can even register to the community for free. All you have to do is head to womenindata.co.uk. Have a great day.